Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode XXXIX, Asterix and the Missing Scroll. Wait, what? Yes, we present to you in this episode a classicist view of the new Asterix book, which just came out. It's written by, and I apologise for my pronunciation, Jean Vess Feli, and drawn by Didier Conrad. I'm really sorry, guys, I just butchered your names. And we thought, because we're at the end of a dynasty, and hey, why not, that now would be the time for me to subject Rhiannon to the new Asterix book and see what she thinks. What did you think of it, Rhiannon? I thought it was fun, and uh, it was good to see the point of view of the Gauls, albeit in a comic way, in the context of Caesar's Gallic Wars. Mm. And the framework of this is that there is one Gallic village that holds out against the Romans. So we get a kind of free Gaul view, whereas Caesar famously conquers all of Gaul. Yes. And it's, it's a book, as I imagine they all are, a comic that's very clearly familiar with Caesar's Gallic Wars, which is sort of the urtext where we get all of our information about the Roman invasion of Gaul because he was the man on the spot. Yeah. And it's making fun of that text. This one more so than the other volumes in particular because this one is is dealing with the texts directly and kind of addressing why the little Gaulish village isn't a part of their texts and uh, and why, why they've been omitted from this historical document. Yeah, it's quite self-aware. And this is why Matt and I thought it would be interesting to look at this one because it's called The Missing Scroll. So the idea is that there's a missing volume of Caesar's Gallic Wars, which deals with the failures. So the battles that Caesar lost that he initially writes, but then there's a move to have this suppressed. So there's a kind of self-censorship going on because it would look bad. It would be bad PR. So there's lots of jokes, uh, kind of contemporary jokes, about the way that celebrities mould and shape their image to the public. There's also lots of reflections of Caesar's text, which, of course, he's producing this work called The Gallic Wars, which presents him very, very well. And they're clearly aware of that. You know, he wins battles. If battles are ever lost, then it's usually one of his other generals in command. So they're sort of starting from an understandable point because they've got this ancient work that looks like a great PR work for Caesar. And the missing scroll is the one that deals particularly with the village of Asterix and the losses that the Romans have incurred. Although I have to say, if the Romans were anything like the Romans in this comic, then they would have lost a lot more battles because <laughs> they're presented pretty much as idiots. Right from the get-go, really, where Caesar himself, who um, has the mickey taken out of him, Sorry, that's a phrase I'm not allowed to use because people don't understand it. Do oh, they? you can use it. <laughs> he is made fun of, I know, in, in all of these books. But here, he seems too stupid to realise that writing about his losses will be a bad look. Mm. It's not going to make him this celebrated hero. And he has to be told that by his publisher, 
Blockbusters is the one who suggests that this should be got rid of. But it's the Roman soldiers themselves who are put on the case to bring back the scroll, who are particularly idiots. So they're always tripping over and falling out of trees, just acting in ways that would be very inefficient. That, that's really quite normal for any Roman soldier who ends up following Asterix around for any particular reason during the course of the book. They are not going to fare well or be competent <laughs> at all. Yes, I must admit from from the standpoint of uh, standard fare for Asterix, there's usually a, a, a lower level kind of antagonist, who in this case is the publisher, and he is going to be made look foolish during the course of the book. My question is, if there was a chapter of Caesar's Gallic Wars about his failures and about a little Gaulish village that stood up to him, it's not within the realm of impossibility, is it, that that was written and has been lost? Or that that was excised for PR reasons? Well, the way that the Gallic Wars is written, it's written basically in chronological order. Mm. So there would be bits excised throughout. All right. So Caesar wrote seven books of it. There's an eighth book written by one of his generals, which deals with the last two years. But each of Caesar's years is one year. So book one is 58 BCE. Book seven is 52 BCE. And you can fill in the ones in between. So if we take the Asterix books at their face value, then he's having constant failures to uh, conquer this particular village. So they'd have to be interspersed throughout the whole work. Mm. So I think we could imagine that there are parts of each book that would have to be redacted. Right. That would be suppressed, that he wouldn't be writing about, or if he did write about them, he'd be keeping them secret under his pillow. He wouldn't be sending them back to Rome, to the Senate, which is some people's theory about why he was writing it at all. And so it wouldn't really be one scroll. So, you know, this is not something that matters in the case of this story at all. Mm. But they wouldn't be all there together in one. I mean, who would write about all their failures in one volume? <laughs> yes. From the intention of Caesar, you know, page one in this, he says that this is a, he's doing this for historical reasons to document all of this. And is it within the realm of possibility then that what he wrote is cleaned up, that it's making him look better? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there's been a lot of work done on Caesar to talk about how he, it's self-promotion. He's the person in charge of this text, but he writes it as if he's not, because it's written in the third person. So he doesn't write, I marched into Gaul. So he writes it as if he's a neutral author, but everyone knows he's not. Everyone mm. knows he wrote it. It might have been cleaned up afterwards, but there's every sign that Caesar didn't really need a good editor because he was a very good writer and a very good speaker. So I think there's a good reason to think that it all came from Caesar. And if there's suppression going on, then he's the one who suppresses some of the facts. And of course he does. He doesn't write every single thing that happened. So how about from the Gaulish side of things? It's reflected the Gauls as having a very strong oral tradition. In some aspects, a few of the Gaul characters kind of see that as being a bit backwards kind of view. The Druid Getafix is kind of portrayed as being old-fashioned by insisting on it all being oral tradition. But that's the way that Gauls did things back then? Well, the evidence that we have from this ironically comes from Caesar. Yeah. So this is a text dealing with what we know about the Gauls that comes from the text that it's making fun of. So Caesar tells us, he has this big ethnographic section, and he says the Gauls don't write anything down. It's not because they're uncivilized. They know how to write in Greek characters, but they think it's wrong to do that. 
So the way that they transmit their stories and their culture is through memorizing and through oral culture. And the people who are charged with this, which this book gets quite right, are the Druids. And this is why it can take up to 20 years to train to be a Druid, because you've got to learn all of these texts by heart. Mm, Wow. I'm not sure I'd agree with you that this is represented as a negative here, though, because it's actually the thing that allows them to learn the sacred scroll and not being in danger of being lost. They can give the scroll back, but they've still got it fixed in somebody's memory and it can be handed down. There was a kind of counter push for Vital Statistics to write his own view. That's true. Yes. There were a lot of the the Gauls in the little Gaulish village. I like that we're having this debate at all, by the way. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of Gauls in the little Gaulish village going, you know, we should be writing our own view. The the journalist who comes up in that, whose name I can't remember, but was... uh, Confound their politics. Yes. So the, the Julian Assange... Yes, we'll probably get sued for saying that. Yes, <laughs> I think he'd like it. But it was originally meant, it's meant to be Julian Assange. It clearly looks a bit like him and his name was meant to be WikiLeaks in the mm. early edits of this book. He was pushing for a, an account to be written by Vital Statistics. And I think this partly reflects the view of ancient historians and classicists who would love there to be a Gallic text so that we could have their version of it. We're relying on archaeology and other kinds of finds for that, which can give you information, but can't give you quite the same kind of information as Caesar gives us in, in his text. So we'd like something to counter that because their view of it would be very, very different. So we, we sort of almost get it through this push for the chieftain of the tribe to write this down. Um, I think it all falls apart in the comic ending. But if Caesar's right about this and it might well be true because we don't have any written texts from Gaul that was not their convention mm. to write down their traditions, their myths, their religious rites. That's been quite clearly reflected in this this particular comic, which is quite nice that people have read book six of Caesar's Gallic Wars and they've chosen to use it in this way Yeah, yeah. as part of the plot. The other thing that Asterix books often do is uh, have a riff on current culture and current life and modern times. This one in particular talks about um, communication and censorship and and journalism and freedom of speech and the press and and those kind of issues in getting this censored scroll out there for the rest of the world to kind of see. But the the thing that I kind of liked and wanted to touch on was uh, how the communications were shown, uh, specifically the, the pigeon Were they doing that kind of thing? Were they sending birds back and forth as messengers? Caesar doesn't mention that at all in his Gallic Wars, but we do have evidence from elsewhere. There's a a later writer called Frontinus who writes about military strategy, and he says that carrier pigeons are used, an idea they might have been used in Gaul. He certainly talks about them being used in sieges so that you can get messages out bit nasty actually the way he talks about it because he says that Hirtius who is one of Caesar's generals who's actually the man who writes book eight of the Gallic Wars used them by starving pigeons and then putting the message on their foot and sending them out to where they know they can get food right so that's where you want the message to get to that sounds like it's quite a short distance you're just trying to get it over presumably enemy lines when you're under siege So there's a bit of evidence that they're used, but perhaps not quite to the extent that we would be able to. The comic deals with them in a very comedic way in that 
they're sort of the equivalent of our electronic media in yeah, some ways. Yeah. These very curt messages that don't really make sense because it's all abbreviations. It's text speak, really, or email speak yeah. uh, that's used against them. And they're, they're supposed to be much faster than the cursus publicum, which is the mail service, which we would call snail mail these days. Yeah, well, at one point, the, the pigeon flies past the mail cart, which is just taking its sweet time, and there was a, there was a snail just kind of blazing past the I noticed that. The, the yes, mail cart it's as so well. slow yeah. <laughs> that even a snail can pass it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I guess it depends on your internet supply whether that's necessarily true. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's lots of those little contemporary jokes. And actually, the, the joke that I liked most is sort of both about the ancient text and our contemporary use of ancient works in that the whole basis of these books at all. So how do we know about Asterix? Well, of course, Asterix is an invented character, but it, he kind of writes himself into Roman history or they write him into Roman history by saying what we know about Asterix comes from that lost scroll. So yeah. the Gauls actually did hand this tradition down orally. Yeah, they so it's, told gone, from, it's gone from Druid to Druid to Druid to Druid and spoilers right there at the end is a, a Druid in modern Paris, well passing on the stories of Asterix and Obelix to a, a young Goskinian Utsero. So it's, it is very self-fulfilling there. It's a kind of um, authorizing of the text, mm. this idea that it does have an ancient source. It validates it, that it hasn't just been invented in the 20th and 21st centuries, that it actually has, it doesn't have a text tradition, but what it has is an oral tradition. It's been handed down. It's just as good as Caesar's Gallic Wars. Yes, that's right. Glad to hear you say that. That's going to be my ringtone. <laughs> so is, is there anything else that, uh, that you thought was cool in it that you wanted to talk about? There is one point where, and I guess this picks up a bit on the idea that the oral tradition might be something negative or that, you know, the memorization is a, is a lesser form than writing it down, is that at one point Caesar's quite rude about the Gauls. One particular point, he actually verbalizes it very strongly when Obelix has, he's overhearing the text being memorized, the quote is, this indomitable band consists of uneducated and scruffy Gauls who know nothing about law and order. It's, not, really it's not the way that Caesar talks about the Gauls yeah. at all. That's an exaggeration. It's what you might expect of a, an imperial military leader to think of the people he's dominating. But... I mean, he talks about them practicing human sacrifice, which by inference is negative and primitive, but he doesn't actually use that kind of, oh, these people are uneducated. He's, he's quite impressed, I think, by the fact that they can memorize all of these texts, that they've got a society with rules and regulations. They've got a religion. Mm. And if anything, what he compares them with is the way he describes the, the Germans, the Germani, who are much more primitive. So really in his kind of, anthropology, if you like, his way of talking about other peoples. The Gauls are not primitive, uneducated idiots. So I thought that was quite interesting because it's, it's definitely an exaggeration of what Caesar says. Any questions for me, being the, uh, the person who's read Asterix since he was five? So is this consistent <laughs> with the way that the Romans and Gauls are presented throughout? Uh, yeah, I think more or less. And that was maybe one of the strengths of the book, that it just nailed the kind of classic era of Asterix, which was pre when Goscinny died, everything that Goscinny kind of wrote is what you put as being good Asterix. And I think that this 
lived up to that quite well. Um, and are there as many puns in all of them? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That's actually doing it quite well for the level <laughs> of puns. I, I'd be really interested to see the French. And I did try and get a hold of the French copy before we did this, but I, I failed in that. Because, of course, they must have to have a translator who makes up new versions of the puns because yeah. they don't work yeah, across well, languages. Well, generally, you go through and look for the names. So Blockbusters has a, an assistant, I think, named Pride and Prejudice. The reporter was going to be named Wikileaks, and I think he's got something a bit more cumbersome now. Yeah, confound their politics. Doesn't just trip off the tongue, does it? That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes. If we made it to your Christmas list, we'd love a review and tell your friends about the podcast. You can come and like us on Facebook. You can follow both of us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. The next episode of Emperors of Rome will finally take us out of the studio. We don't get very far, but, you know, there it is. So until then... I'm Matt Smith, and you have been fantastic, and thanks for listening.